time or something, right? Wow. Hey, we want to encourage you to sign up for Carnival. It's not just a great opportunity to uh, reach out and have fun with others. You can also wear Hawaiian shirts, and that's a lot of fun too. Friends, we are in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We want to encourage you to uh, turn there, and as you do, let me pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you and praise you. We ask that you would be glorified and honored in the things that we do and in the things that we say. And Holy Spirit, as we come before you today, we ask that you would show us a new way. We recognize that our normal way, our default way, has been a way that has led to death of need. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way that we would walk in a place of freedom, freedom that is only found in you. So be exalted, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. When we, when Cindy and I first got married, we thought it was going to be, you know, just like so amazing because we could do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it, and there would be just all kinds of freedom, and then reality hit like the day after our honeymoon, and we realized, wait a minute, it doesn't quite work that way. There was many times when there, were, uh, there was more month than money, many times when the needs were great, and I was always amazed at how God would meet us in those places. For example, one time when we were, the cupboards were bare, friends, and somebody just showed up with groceries just to love on us and encourage us, and it was, it was a model that we saw, and we wanted to help others. So in the future, as we had opportunity, we, we too learned to identify people who might have needs and ways that we could give to others, and, and so we did that, recognizing that this This freedom isn't a freedom that we can experience in complete independence of others, but rather the freedoms that we have is in connection with others. I would say everything about our world reminds us of that, and in that respect, I would say that our world is sacramental, sacramental. So what do I mean by that? Well, I mean this that our world is a mystery that reveals Christ in unique ways. And specifically, our need for Jesus, our need to be connected. We can't experience freedom without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us that freedom, and that freedom doesn't exist apart from him and in unity with others. And our world in every aspect of it, whether it's the heavens declaring the glory of God or the recognition of our need for water or for food, it is sacramental. And it pushes us, it reminds us of an incredible need that we have. And if we want freedom, that freedom means we need to be connected. And ultimately, that connection points us to Christ. That's where we're going today, and that's where we'll be walking as we look at Romans chapter 8 and discuss this issue of freedom. But to do that, we should also look at where we've been. The end of chapter 7 reminded us of this. In verse 24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And if you remember last week when we came together, we said it's most likely that Paul is referring to a practice that happened in a specific province near, uh, near where he grew up. And this practice was this, that when someone was found guilty of murdering someone, then they would be shackled to that corpse that they murdered. Just a terrible, terrible, awful practice. That person would literally die from the person that they murdered as the rot and the stench and all that goes along with it slowly uh, was enveloped by that other person. Paul seems to be referring to that in the passage when he says this, who will deliver me from this body of death? Recognizing that our bodies are decaying. There is something about our bodies that is, uh, that, that's default is the flesh. That we are concerned about satisfaction, significance, and security. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. We're, we're surrounded by it, and it is our default thought and life pattern. Paul says, who will deliver us? And then he gives this answer. He says it this way, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, connecting the Father and the Son in a unique way in this passage. Thanks be to God. God is the one who delivers us from this body of flesh, and yet here we are, still in the flesh. So what does it mean? Well, that's where we pick it up in Romans chapter 8. As we walk through Romans chapter 8, we're going to see that Paul is going to communicate to us there is a new life. There is the way that we've existed, but there is a new life. And that new life is transformative from the mind to our actions. And we'll see that play out in real time as we walk through uh, this passage together. In doing so, we, we want to pause and consider the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit throughout this chapter. Uh, one of the issues that I've seen throughout Protestant Christianity especially is that there is a tendency to think of uh, the Holy Spirit as lesser. Like out of the three, the Holy Spirit's kind of at the bottom. Or we would say that the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as like a force, you know, like Star Wars the force be with you, and the spirit be with you kind of thing. And that's not at all who the Holy Spirit is. For some people, it's very scary because when we start talking about things of the Holy Spirit, it, it, it begins to be this, okay, well, what is, what is the Spirit of God going to tell me to do? He's going to make me very uncomfortable, and who knows? I might just start saying things that I'm not under control to, to, to uh, say or not to say. And I want to state this. The Holy Spirit is not scary in that respect. I, I like uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read Chronicles of Narnia? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's this time where the Pevensies, they go into this uh, weird reality, this alternate world, okay? So they're in this alternate world, and they're talking to this family of beavers. It sounds super weird. You have to read the books if you don't get it. Uh, if you haven't read it, this is going to sound even weirder. But they're talking to uh, Mr. Beaver and... The, the Christ character in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is Aslan. He's a lion. And one of the girls asks this question, is, is the lion safe? And he goes, oh, no. <laughs> he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what I would say about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is good. He's good. 
And we can welcome the Holy Spirit. We, we can follow the Holy Spirit's leadings, and we recognize that his word gives us definition and helps us to understand how the Holy Spirit works. So, a few things to note. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, not an it, not a thing, but a divine person. He is sent to indwell, guide, teach, empower the believer and convince the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so we're going to be speaking, talking about uh, the Holy Spirit as we work through this passage together. The Holy Spirit gives us new life, and Paul is going to emphasize this new life in chapter 8. We live in a world of tension, a world that is physical and is fleshly. And by fleshly, I mean that it focuses on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. If you need other categories, as I've stated earlier, it's significance, satisfaction, and security. Those are great categories that the flesh focuses on, draws their attention, draws its attention to. Paul is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit gives us another way, a new life. And that new life is free from condemnation. Because believers died with Christ, as stated in chapter 6, we're dead to sin and death and alive in Christ, referring to uh, the ordination, the, the ordination of um, baptism, the ordinance of baptism, the law has no more power to condemn the believer for violation of God's standards. Let's see what that means. We're in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, as we walk through this together. What does this freedom from condemnation mean? There is therefore now no condemnation. Remember that he just ended the last chapter uh, using this picture of being shackled to a dead body. Who is going to deliver us from this body of death? God will deliver us. And then he goes into this, there is therefore now no condemnation. So what does that mean? It means that there was condemnation. That somebody was condemned. Now, somebody that was condemned for the believer is Jesus, right? He took our condemnation. The word condemnation there means a verdict. There was a verdict. We are guilty. There is God's holy standard. We didn't meet that standard. And we are guilty. And that guilt is death. That's what we find out through the scriptures. That, that death separates us from God. Paul is telling the believer, those who have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this. There is no condemnation. There is no death for you. There is, there. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? That means that for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. There is death. So there, there is this idea of either you have received Jesus as your Savior or you haven't received Jesus as your Savior. If you've received Jesus as your Savior, then you're free from condemnation. If you haven't, then that guilt still remains. And there is death and there is separation, as we'll see. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the early church fathers identified this, and I think identified it rightly, that they said, there is one law. There's God's law. And God's law demands perfection. And God's law calls us to that perfection. He's not grading on a curve. 
But that perfection can't be met in the flesh. It just can't be. When we try to meet that law in the flesh, it's sin and death. That's what we get. That's all it identifies. It identifies how far we fall from being perfect. But in the Spirit, we're able to fulfill that law. And that's what he's getting to in this. For the law of the Spirit, verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What is that? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's pause there just so that we're clear what we mean. When we say that, that the father sent the son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the emphasis is on sinful. So he sent him in the flesh. He, he showed up. He had skin. He had bones. He, he was physically here, but not sinful. Uh, he lived a perfect life. He was in the likeness of it, but he never submitted to the flesh. He walked in the Spirit. Let's continue on. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God gave a verdict to sin. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We can fulfill that law when we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So let's talk about uh, uh, this life in Christ, this new way. This new way demands not just that we're free from condemnation, though that is true. There are other things that we get. Hang in there and follow along with me if you would. Not only is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but they also are redeemed, alive to God, possessors of eternal life, free from the law of sin and death, members of one spiritual body, sharers in Christ's work, sanctified, recipients of grace, secure in death, bold to speak the truth, new creatures, free, justified, recipients of the blessings given to Abraham, sons of God, one with others regardless of race, gender, or condition, recipients of every spiritual blessing in heaven, seated in the heavens, created for good works, brought near to God, not just that, but they're partakers of the promises forgiven by God. They're encouraged, they're at peace, they're provided for, they're anticipating the resurrection of our bodies. They're overseers by providence, not just that, but they are alive and saved. That's who we are in Christ. That is the difference. Do you see it? That is not available in the flesh. That is for those who walk in the Spirit. And we're going to see more and more what that means as we progress in this new way, this freedom from control by the power, and specifically the power of sin. Though the power of sin is still present, the Holy Spirit frees the believer from being controlled by what this appetite desires. So our flesh calls us to stuff. It wants things. But empowered by the Spirit, we have freedom from that control. Watch and see how Paul identifies that as we walk together in verses uh, 5 through 14. 
what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just going to read it. I might highlight a few points, but we're basically just going to read it. And, and then I'm going to have a few slides at the, end, at the end of this section to do some compare and contrast. And you, you might want to take some uh, pictures of that. Let's look at this. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Pause there. That's that phronema. That's our our, our mind, our worldview might be another way of, of translating this. We set our mind, our worldview on things of the flesh. What is that? As we stated earlier, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's satisfaction, it's significance, it's security, if we want those categories. So that's what our mind is set on. How do I take care of this, this need for satisfaction that I have, whether that's uh, sensual, or whether that's through hunger or thirst, our minds are consumed by it. Maybe it's significance. How do I look good in front of others? What is that thing that I need to accomplish so that others will look at me more highly? Or maybe it's security. What, what do I need to do to protect myself because no one else is? What is that? That's what our minds are trapped in for those who walk in the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That means separation from God. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So if death is separated from God, then the life is connected to God. It's his purpose. That's what happened in the garden. Like his goal was to walk in union and uh, in unity with people. That's why he created us, that we would glorify him in that walk. Life. But then he also says peace. And that's complete. That's total. That's shalom peace. It's not just... Um, the lack of conflict, but rather having peace even in conflict. Knowing that God is in control, knowing that I can walk with him, I can trust him uh, in humility, that he'll lead me. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, speaking to the church of Rome, those who have surrendered to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who are following Christ, those who are gathered together as believers in worship, this is who he is speaking to. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Uh, so, so catch that. He's saying... Uh, don't live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. Uh, how do I know that I'm living according to the Spirit? Well, there are, there, are some, there are some things, but one of those things is that the Spirit of God dwells within us. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Look at how the second person and the third person of the Trinity are interconnected there. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That last phrase is not a sexist comment. It's a, it's a comment that's in the context of the first century. In the first century, uh, the, the sons would inherit what the father had. Presumably, the daughters who would be married would be inheriting what their husband had. So that's how that worked in the ancient world. Don't let that make you stumble. The point is there is an inheritance that is from God given to those who are obedient and follow him. So let's do some compare and contrasting in this. What, what does this mean? For those who live uh, in accordance with the flesh versus those who live in accordance with the spirit. Let's talk it through. So what do they think about? Well, their minds in the flesh, their minds are set on the desires of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, satisfaction, significance, and security. But in the spirit, their minds are set on the desires of the spirit. And by the way, how do we know those? Those, those are encapsulated in the scriptures, right? Like we, we know what the desires of the spirit are because God's given us his word. And so as we look at his word, we're able to, to understand the principles behind it. Does, does God want me to go over to my neighbor's house and chew them out for letting their dog bark early in the morning? Or am I supposed to send grace? Am I supposed to confront them in love? Yeah, maybe. Uh, am I supposed to be mean and not mow my lawn or you know, uh, throw dandelions in their yard? I don't know. No, no, that's not it. Our minds are set on the desires of the Spirit, and we know the Spirit because we know the Word. So what's the ultimate end? For those who walk in the flesh, the ultimate end is death, separation from God. For those who walk in the Spirit, it leads to life and peace. What are the attitudes toward God? Well, on the one hand, in the flesh, it's hostility or hostile towards God, and people might say, well, that, that sounds like somebody who's very aggressive, but I would say being neutral is also hostile to God because there is either following the flesh or following the spirit. There's, a, there's not really this gray line. So you're, you're doing one or the other, the flesh or the spirit. And if you're not in the spirit, then you're in the flesh, and walking in the flesh is hostility towards God. He's given us his answers. He's given us his word. He's given us his indwelling spirit to live it out. And if we're walking in the flesh, then there's hostility towards God. But what about the attitude of those who are walking in the spirit? Receptive towards God. Attitude towards God's standards. Look at this. Uh, for those who walk in the flesh, uh, they don't, they don't submit to God's standard. They can't. Like you just can't fulfill it. Or seeks to fulfill God's law. Loving my neighbor as myself, that's a hard one. How do I do that? How do I love my... By the way, I should say, I don't have a neighbor whose dogs bark. I just want you to know that. Like I said that earlier. I think I even used that like last week. And you guys are going to be like, man, he's got some issues with his neighbors. What's going No, I got great neighbors. They're wonderful. <laughs> But how do we seek to fulfill God's word? How do we seek that? Well, you might say, well, well, I can't. That's true. In the, in the flesh, we can't. But in the spirit, we have the ability uh, to fulfill it. Ability to keep God's standards on the one 
on the one hand, we're unable to submit to God's law. On the other hand, we're able to submit to God's law. There is an ability to please God. Can't do it in the flesh, but in the spirit, we absolutely can. I, I want to pause there for a second and, and share a little bit about this process. So there is a transformation of the mind that is occurring, and Paul is going to bring us up to chapter 12 that we're not going to get into during this uh, this particular series. But he's going to bring us up to chapter 12, and he's going to tell us that we're, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we're going to get this idea, and it's pretty clear in this passage even, that this, this mind transformation, it, it yields action. A friend of mine used to say it this way. He'd say, the elephant danced again. He'd do something dumb, and he'd go, oh, the elephant danced again. And this is what he meant the thoughts. And those thoughts lead to E, elephant? Nope, emotions. The emotions, the elephant danced again, I'm sorry, desires, then emotions, and then actions. And so there's this progress that we see that it goes from thoughts to desires to emotions to actions. And so our mind is pivotal do we walk in the flesh or do we walk in the spirit? The elephant danced again. Don't forget it as we continue on. What is this new way? There is a freedom from fear of abandonment. The Holy Spirit testifies with believers' spirit that they will be forever the children of God. You know, one of the things that has been lost in our culture to a certain degree is a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging. So, for example, when I talk about my background, I talk about, uh, okay, so there's a lot of Irish, there's a little bit of German, there's a little bit of Native American, there's a little, like, I'm a Heinz 57 of a lot of things. Who am I? Who are you? And that is a question that is being asked consistently in our culture, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Who am I? There was a time where if you grew up in a home where your family were farmers, guess what you were going to be? A farmer. Uh, if your family were tailors, guess what you were going to be? A tailor. And so who am I has been a question that has really plagued people because it's a, it's a question of purpose. I've been talking to a lot of seniors lately as graduation has occurred, and this is true both in high school and in college, and one of the frustrations with some of the seniors, at least as they're communicating it, has been this, I could do anything. Like, literally, I could do anything. I, I don't know if I want to be a mason or if, if I want to be an electrician or if I want to uh, go on and be a pastor. I, like, I, I could do anything. If I want to start my own business, I could do anything. Who am I is a question that is plaguing people. And, and, and so one of the things that they find out is it's like, okay, well, I don't really feel like I belong here, and I don't feel like I belong here, and I don't feel like I belong here, and it's problematic. But God's Word tells us that we have freedom from that. We have freedom from the fear of abandonment. In other words, we belong somewhere. There is a purpose to who we are and God's plan in our life, and actually, He does have a plan. And that's beautiful, and it's encouraging, and we see it in these next few verses if you would read along with me. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let me stop there for a second. So in Paul's time, it would be true that when they said God's name, his proper name, people would fall on their face. And so it wasn't used very often. Oftentimes, even when reading of the scriptures, the proper name of God would be replaced with another name like Adonai, for example. Lord is how we often translate that. Or Hashem, the name. They would change it because they didn't want to get so familiar with God that they, they bred contempt in their own life, like they would become flippant around God. So they didn't just say his name. So Paul is saying something here that is uh, transformative, that would have been a shock to the people that, that would have heard this. It would have been a surprise. He's saying that actually that God, that, that we are careful in how we speak to him and how we uh, come before him, he has, given, he has adopted us, and we can call him dad. Like, there's an intimacy there that, that hasn't existed before. He's our dad. He loves us. He has called us to himself. We have a place and we have a purpose in life. We know where we belong because we're a part of this family of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Whoa, that last sentence, yikes. I really like the, there is therefore now no condemnation. Yay, freedom, love that. But that, provided we suffer with him, I, I don't know if you know this, but the Romans, when they were trying to think of the worst thing, the worst execution they could come up with, they came up with crucifixion. They crucified people. People would sometimes hang there for days before they died. They would die of suffocation. They just weren't strong enough to hold themselves up to breathe. It was horrible. And then sometimes they would inflict pain before or even during the time they were on the cross. It was horrible. Later on in English, when they were trying to figure out, like, what is the worst uh, pain somebody can go through, they came up with a word, and the word is excruciating. It literally means out of the cross. Provided we suffer with him, Jesus. The word suffer is kind of a, a, a word that has a spectrum of meaning. It can mean on one hand, it, it could mean uh, being persecuted Verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, for your faith, could mean that. It could also mean uh, suffering in your health. So if, if your health goes bad or, or something, something occurs to you physically, you could be suffering. So what's the point here? The point is that the believer is taking the suffering and using it as a sacrament, like God is using this in my life to extend to me grace, but we're taking that suffering and we're offering it back to God. This suffering I give to you, Lord. It's more than I can bear. I don't like it. I'm not okay with it, but I'm willing to receive it and give it to you, this suffering. Be it anywhere on that spectrum. And what does he say? provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
I think sometimes we're a little too quick to ask for um, a way out, to ask for something easy, to ask for the security or the significance or the satisfaction. Can we do it? Sure, sure. Should we do it? Sure. But never without that being an offering to God. Yet not my will, but your will be done. That's what Jesus said in the garden as he asked for this cup to go past him. This burden. And so we have it too. In fact, we live in that place, this new way. We have some choices to make. Will we walk in the flesh or will we walk in the spirit? For those who are born again, you have the spirit of God indwelling you to live this life given by God for his glory. And it's going to come with some suffering, but life does. So we offer that to God. With that in mind, the worship team is going to be coming out. And as, as they come out, I want to transition here a little bit as we prepare our hearts for communion. The Lord, on, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he told his disciples about what, what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. He reminded them that this, this bread, it represents his body. And this blood, it, or the, I'm sorry, this wine, it represents his blood. And that we're supposed to take this in remembrance of him. And so as we come together, we we do that. We take this in remembrance of him. And we've been given some guidelines. The guidelines are this. Am I following Jesus? Am I walking in the flesh or am I walking in the spirit? If I'm walking in the flesh, and there may be elements that are walking in the flesh, then I need to do something called repentance. Repentance is a biblical term. You've perhaps heard me say it. It's you're walking in one direction. You're convinced and convicted that this is the wrong direction. And instead of turning to another sin, we turn to God. God, forgive me. Help me to obey you. Help me to follow you. Help me to love you through this in this place. It's repentance. And so communion affords us that opportunity to do just that to repent before the Lord as there is sin that needs to be addressed. And then, this is, what, this is another piece of communion, is that we participate together. Like, that's the beauty of it. We're in this together. It's not just a bunch of lone rangers. We're not isolated. We're in this together. We're living this Christ-like life out together, empowered by the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit, and we do that together. And communion signifies that. A friendship, we have what's called open communion, meaning that you don't have to be a member of Friendship Church to participate, but you do need to be a member of the church. And by a member of the church, I mean that you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We encourage you to come down the carpeted areas to go to one of the stations near you to get both the bread and the cup and return back to your seat and wait for everyone. And at the end of this next song, uh, we'll participate together. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are at work in us. And I, I would just even ask right now that you would, you would forgive us for those times when we've wrongly been scared of you, when we have, uh, wrong, when we have thought wrongly of your work and your will in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your freedom in this place, that you would uh, be free to speak into our hearts, to convict us of sin, 
as, as there may be sin in our hearts, that we would repent and be obedient to you, to love you, to follow you, to obey you, to have a mind that is of the Spirit and not of the flesh. And so we need your work here today for that very reason. Be exalted, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.